snow is falling. All around us, the children are playing. They're having fun. It is the season. Love and understanding. Merry Christmas, everyone. If you knew how utterly deplorable and grumpy Shaken Stevens is as a person, you'd find his cheery holiday lyrics quite ludicrous, I can assure you. Then again, you ought to suspect that anywhere from his namesake, which he gets not from his jutting and shifting hips as is thought by so many, but actually from the one time he shook a puppy until it went limp for five pound and a can of Tizer. Shaking aside, it is Christmas, and while I'm sure you all expect us not to hear from me until the new year, I thought I'd give all you wonderful listeners, and the shit too, an extra slice of Christmas cake, in the form of a bonus episode, a Christmas clip show, with all of your favourite moments from series one, as voted by me, Sean, and my iguana Keith. For those interested, we put every section of every episode of the series on a card and laid them out and then let Keith walk across them. If he passed them without attempting to eat, fight or defecate on the cards, then we considered it a vote for that section and in it went. So yes, here is one more chance for me, so hold with Felix Smooth, to say, oh, good day, in the year of our lords. 2020, and one more chance for you to enjoy series one of Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. And if you hold on to the very end, well, I promise you to close with my Christmas message, which I can promise will be shorter than the Queen's and I think more insightful. She does go on in her old age, but then the mind will go, and I think she's evidence of that. I do, do hope you enjoy it. On with the clip show! Let's start at the very beginning, all together now. It's a great place to start. Julia Andrews. Wonderful. I suppose since I've been talking about the actor already in my wonderful introduction, it would be apt to start the real business by trying to understand what actors begin their lives, and how and why that beginning is so important to understand. We may not get to that last bit. It's a bit much. I know from my experience, I'm sure it's true for most, that I began my journey as an actor in that big, soft, warm and bubbly pink theatre, the uterus. Sure, it wasn't possible for people to physically see the unusual performance I was giving in those formative months, mostly concentrating on growing, though the odd scan provided what I think is probably the first example of an empty live performance, and I'm certain that each and every thump to my mother's guts I gave, live on the small black and white grainy screen, was awarded with thunderous applause from the sonographer and her assistant. I can't be sure of their sex, but... Like nurses, midwives, and prostitutes, they're usually females. This was my beginning. A very typical actor's beginning. It's tempting to give a full and frank and unordinarily graphic account of my birth or debut. Its dramatic merit speaks for itself. According to The Guardian, my exit from the vagina was five stars. But I fear on this occasion we don't have the time. Let's just say it was rather like the Battle of Bosworth scene at the end of Shakespeare's Dicky Three, 
or for those out there with a taste for the more filmic of analogies, the thirty-minute battle for Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings the Second. Except in my mother's case, the onslaught was near forty-two hours, and you thought you were long-winded, Mr. Jackson. Peter, not Michael. Other comparable films of note would be Look Who's Talking, Nine Months, Look Who's Talking 2, Jonia, Apocalypse Now, Look Who's Talking 3 and 4, Carrie, Look Who's Talking 5 through 7, The Evil Dead, and any other film I've missed that includes babies, birthing, medical persons, lots of blood, and or badly judged episiotomies. What a debut! Of course, beyond the minge, beginnings for young actors these days include a trip to the old stage finishing school for a measly 60,000 per annum. But in my day, better days, we would leave the confines of the vagina and move directly into repertory theatre after a period of about 18 years. And it was tough. Oh, boy, 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 was it tough. I mean, I joined Larry's rep company for the 53 complete works of Shakespeare season, and the schedule was tighter than lycra breeches on a character part's thighs. That season, we were up at 6.30am for breakfast and then into rehearsals for the Scottish play at 6.45. After an hour, it was out of the rehearsal room and onward. By 8am, we were into makeup and costume for the first performance of the day, which was the Danish play at 8.30am. Now... The Danish play, as you well know, is four hours, but in a rep day, you hardly have time, so we'd just take out every fifth line, and that shaved a good 40 off it. And we'd be curtained down, and trousers down, by 11.45am, ready for a bicky before afternoon rehearsal. Now, of course, a rep company must always have two to three hundred players under its belt at any one time, so naturally the afternoon rehearsal was a different play again. This time, one of the Roman plays. By 12.45, it was spatulas down and back into costume and makeup for our matinee of the Veronian tragedy, which also came down blissfully early because one of our stage hands worked out a way to amalgamate all of the death scenes into one super scream scene at the end, shaving off a lovely 30. Well done, Sheila. Now... With Robin Jude down by 3.30, it was time for a bicky again, but then back into rehearsals for another hour. On this occasion, the French play, Hen 5. After an hour, it's back into costume, make up for the evening performance of the Greek Forest Fast, which was always an hour longer than written because Larry insisted on the forest being hand-built every night. Loopy Larry. So that was five hours. If you were lucky... You were home and in bed by 12am, stopping on the way home, of course, for the last rehearsal of the day of the Venetian tragedy, Otello, the Moor of Venice, whereby, of course, I would help Larry into and out of his extremely heavy makeup. It was a different time, chickens, I beg you. I mean, it sounds fun, doesn't it? Well, let me tell you this. It was fun, but it was hard. Very, very hard. Extremely hard. We, we loved it. We really did. We really, I mean, we, we got on. We, 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 we loved it. Truth be told, we loved it. Right. Oh, but it was hard. It was dre I mean, you must never forget how hard it was. And listen, we absolutely adored it. We wouldn't change it for the world. But it was hard. 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 In the 1997 show business industry census, actors
actors were asked to write down the top things they felt nobody should have to work with in the theatre. And listeners, it's no surprise that children, animals and food all made the top ten. Animals in particular took the silver medal and were seconded only by stagehand sex pests who shared the top spot with Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's very tempting here to throw my halfpenny tuppence in with a personal opinion on Mr. Andrew Webber. I'm not pronouncing his middle name, it's just ridiculous. He can swivel. But I feel that the near 20 minutes I devote to him in a later episode on why musical theatre is so bad is sufficient enough. All, all I will say is this. At restaurants, he never splits the bill. And the only tip I've ever seen him leave a waitress is a handwritten post-it note telling her to always serve from the left and take from the right. Or the other way round, I can't remember. I mean, I said to him in the taxi on the way home, for God's sake, Andy, who cares about all that service stuff? It doesn't matter what way you get your plate. It won't stop the waiter spitting in your gazpacho. Animals, meanwhile, may be at the top of the actor's hat chain, but that doesn't negate the fact they've had a long and illustrious career on the stage, unfortunately. And this is to their credit, because on television and film, they are practically non-existent. I mean, you can barely attend a stage performance these days without seeing a pelican or a porcupine shooed horned into the new Carol Churchill play, if that's what you can call hers. But on the screen, you'd be hard-pressed to spot a yak. It's only the bitch who played Lassie, the mare who played Black Beauty, and the giant silverback that played King Kong that have survived in the nation's memories. And even these trailblazing overachievers have now all perished at the hands of Father Time. I should mention for the younger listeners, Father Time was the nickname given to an animal serial killer who wreaked havoc in the late 1980s after becoming obsessed with the animal celebrities, killing all three in one evening known infamously as the Night of the Dead Dog, Horse and Gorilla. It was a huge story and captured the hearts of the world because of his method of killing, strangulation. And for many like me, there was an element of the double-edged sword to the whole business. Obviously his crimes are heinous and ought to have been court-martialed and put to death by a firing squad, and he would have, had he been a soldier in the First World War. But one must also admit to a kind of admiration for a man who could strangle a horse, a dog, and a 50-ton gorilla with his bare hands in one sitting. I mean, the work ethic alone is astonishing. I sometimes wondered if Britain's Got Talent had been around in the late 1980s, we might have known him in a different light. I mean, perhaps a, a really good juggler, or a plate spinner, or an arm wrestler, you get the idea. I certainly could see someone like David Williams taking a shine to him. Then again, I think he takes a shine to all the boys on the show, but I uh, mustn't gossip. Willie Williams, they call him, along the whispering corridors of ITV. No, I mustn't, I mustn't. Regardless of their popularity with audiences, though, animals are dreadful and will do all they can to ruin a performance, especially on the stage, which, as you know, is a live experience. I mean, the actors, they're really there on, on the stage, you know. No, they are, I assure you. Uh, um, and so, you know, dogs will bark, cats meow, ponies, you know, take large dumps down stage centre. The whole business is a stage manager's nightmare. And the actor, remember, is, for the most part, absolutely powerless. Ask yourself, 
Does the actress playing Dorothy have a choice about whether or not she will work with an animal? No. No. No, she doesn't. She knows there will be a dog because the audience expect to say Toto-to. And can she choose what type of dog Toto-to will be? Certainly not. The producer is king. And he takes his cue from the, from the, well, we'll call them shit munchers, who buy the tickets. Tickets, by the way, which clearly advertise a, a whole show, <laughs> but for which the, the, um, the, well, the shit munchers only care about the mutt that appears in the first ten minutes, who, by the way, can't keep his sphincter closed for three lines of dialogue and a short soft shoe shuffle. Of course, I know this to be a fact. When Ethel Merman, God rest her voice, played Dorothy the year before she died, she weighed 24 stone, and to balance out the size ratio, the producers cast Toe-Toe-Toe as a St Bernard. Absolutely massive, he was. I mean, looked like a small man in a novelty suit. Merman didn't so much carry him in a basket as pull him alongside her and two reinforced skateboards tied together with an old skipping rope. <laughs> to be fair to the particular pair, they got on like a house on fire. I often bumped into them at Joe Allen's sharing a millionaire's cheesecake post show. So it does sometimes work, one must admit. Oh, I tell you what, that brings back some treasured memories. Occasionally they'd let me join their table and we would spend the whole night absolutely roaring with laughter. Oh, Ethel was a good hoot, don't get me wrong, but Bernie was honestly one of the funniest dogs I have ever met and enjoyed a bottle of wine with. Honestly, so quick, so bloody quick, bloody, so bloody quick you could barely get a word in edgeworth. Like a like a, a young Bob Monkhouse, only hairier and with a smaller tongue. I could tell Ethel had a soft spot for him. And one night she let me know as much when we were in the cloakroom, aptly fetching our cloaks. Well, it was cloak night. And as I sifted through the various pelts to find hers for her, she took me firmly by the arm, turned me to the window where we could see Bernie outside, sniffing around, then cocking his leg and pissing up a lamppost. And as we watched, smiling, she leaned into me, tightened her grip on my arms, and said so softly, I mean to marry him. And she meant it. But, no, alas, it was not to be. Within two days, she was dead. The show had closed, and Bernie had left the business. Later, he went into after-dinner speaking, I think. Well, he met his wife, Karen, that's right, who was also from the canines and had two pups. His son, actually, I'm warming to my theme, uh, was in the business for a time and made a string of children's films, I recall. Bernie ended up in politics with a failed run at the American presidency, which was obviously flawed from the outset. I mean, I remember calling him up and asking him, what was he thinking? I mean, how, how could he seriously ever have been the president? I told him, I said, Bernie, come on, for goodness sake, think about it. Think for a second what you are. And he agreed, very sheepishly, but figuratively, that he was a dog, that it was entirely unconstitutional and that he genuinely hadn't realised that you couldn't run for president if you, <coughs> excuse me, if you were born in the UK. I mean, I, do the research, Maisie. That was the last time I spoke to him. I found out a couple of years ago that he had died at the ripe old age of 14. Bernie, the scent bandit. 
I'll never forget you or your fabulous wits. I mean, we really did roar with laughter. Oh, especially the knock-knock joke you told me about Doctor Who. Absolutely priceless. It pains me at this juncture to have to bring up something which I could not go on without addressing. It is very much how you might say the giraffe in the corridor of this episode, and in particular of the children on the stage. And so I must mention the name Colin Gopher. Much has been written about me in relation to dear Colin, and it's true that in 1974 at the stage door of the Vaudeville Theatre I was arrested for his murder after the first preview of the now infamous Ekbornean farce Bugger off Brenda! Exclamation mark. We both appeared in the show, as did a small child, who I can only describe as a boy, because he was, by the name of Harry. Now, in the third act, after the capers and the crumpet scene, my character, Herbert Fingerin, pulls a knife on Colin's character, Helmet in it is, and then lunges at him. However, Harry's character, the young page boy, Toby Tits Muffler, runs in and shouts very loudly, You've got the wrong horse wangler, interrupting the slang, and my character drops the knife. All three laugh at their mistake, gather up their fish and make off stage left on a tandem, and sing. Now, the late great Peters Hall, who directed the play, insisted we use a real knife because it looked better, and because I never got anywhere near Colin. In fact, I was the entire width of the stage away from him, so it was quite the run-up. I'd say almost four seconds at full pelt, but... On the very first preview, Harry misses Q, and with no impetus to stop, and prioritising the story and its realism to the audience over dear Colin's life, I ran him through with the blade, sure and certain in the knowledge that were he to perish, Colin would be glad to lose his life doing what he loved, and maintaining a professional level of stagecraft at all times. Because the story is everything. Now, regardless of the fact that up to that point, for almost a decade actually, I'd been running the registered charity Keep Children Off Stage. I really feel that it was here I lost my patience for them entirely. As I said to the Marshal at Arms, had Harry made his cue, Colin would be alive today. And more importantly, the show would not have closed after one performance. Her Majesty's police agreed with me, and after five days of questioning and a lengthy court battle, I was acquitted of all charges. Meantime, Harry has never had to answer for his actions, and I'm sure he never will, because like all children, he is gutless when it comes to the crunch. I know his family have printed some fairly robust criticism of my behaviour that evening, but I'll say what I said to the Telegraph at the time. If you really think that just because I happened to be holding the knife and was the one who ran full pelt and plunged it deep into his chest, that I, should be responsible for his death. I don't know what to say to you. Yes, Colin Gopher will always have a special place in my heart, and I'm sure me and his, along with the blade. In order for me to write about dear Gopher, my producer and I had to seek permission from his estate, and I present the following statement from them, which they insisted I include, should I wish to use his name, which I do wish, and I must. I must also warn that the delivery of the following statement is very fast, 
And this is simply due to a timing issue with the episode, not at all to do with the content or the opinions. We do disagree on some points, it's true, but I would always defend their right to speak as they wish. So I hope Felix Toe Smooth's account of the evening is and continues to be a mix of urban legend and half-truths. Whilst Harry was expected to interject, the stage manager confirmed at the time that the boy had been in chronic pain and could not go on. Something Smooth was told in the interval. We respect Hobart's position, but his negligence in not listening to redirection has cost us our grandfather's life. For the record, he was not acquitted. The case was thrown out because evidence had been mishandled by the police. All we want is the truth, and pray one day it will out. Sobering stuff. And they're right, in a way, when they imply that if only that child had not missed his cue, Colin would be alive. Children in theatre. What more need be said? Children in theatre. <laughs> Stage auditions are a curious beast indeed. In most instances, the actor will be required to learn two or three scenes, should it be a play, or a few contrasting songs, should it be a musical, or even perhaps a small routine, should it be a ballet or jamboree. This is rarely enough preparation, though, it has to be said, and the more intuitive stage actor will know to learn as much as possible, regardless of, and crucially, outside of the piece itself. In 1969, I made director Richard Eyre collapse when I informed him I had learnt the entire score of Guys and Dolls for my audition with him. And he was beside himself, as was I. Well, it was a mirrored room. And my learning of the entirety of one of the greatest American songbooks to have been created didn't end there. I'd learnt it nearly all with my own spin on it in addition. I could sing Bushel and a Peck two octaves above any lady actor, Luck be a lady backwards, and Adelaide's lament with a Welsh accent and a lisp. And I did, one after the other, to the thunderous applause of the three people on the panel. Uh, note, panel is a technical term used in the theatre, meaning the three men who think they are the most important people in the operation, but who, when it comes to the crunch in delivering the piece, do very little at all. We tend to call them the production team, but you'll find other terms are used, just not to their face. Yes, the array of talents I put on stunned Dickie Air into silence, and it's true he had not one, but two angina attacks in the space of three minutes. Once he came round with a few light slaps and a glass of cold velvet to the face and neck, he stood, shook my hand, cupped my left arse cheek in a small embrace, and offered me Prospero in the Tempest. Afterwards, he had a further four angina attacks before finally settling himself with a dry sherry, as we signed the contracts. Richard always brings Sherry to auditions and rehearsals and on one occasion a burial. It's a home brew of his which he calls Mother's Funk, and funky it is. He, of course, insists it's all above board, even though if you check the handwritten label, it says 111% on it, and it has a small skull and crossbones. Yes. I once saw Derek Jacobi drop a little on his cravat at a black tie function, and within ten minutes the entire thing had disintegrated, and Jacoby was accosted by the host and asked to leave for breaking the dress code. They haven't spoken since. Well, you wouldn't, would you? Naughty dick. So the theatre audition really is about showing as many of your talents as possible with the time you get in the room, of which the industry standard is 30 seconds or minus four bars average, whichever is less. Personally, I've never looked back from this technique. 
and the industry is littered with similar examples. Nicholas Heitner told me that whilst Benedictus Cumberbatch's to be or not to be was compelling in audition, it was his impressive fire-juggling that won him the role of Hamlet and not his commanding use of the verse. I've also heard from a bartender in Soho, London, that he's rather good at windmilling, but I, I think that's um, unrelated. I must Google that. When I called Simon Charmer to get the lowdown, as the kids say, on the origins of drama school, I got a rather large and audible sigh, and the somewhat curt reply of, God, I wish I'd never bloody gone into history, and I was shocked, to say the least. Apparently, Sharma is the go-to historian for celebrities, and although in the subject he's clearly a world leader, and has made a pretty penny out of it too, the incessant calls he receives night and daily about Tudor this, or Russian Revolution, or Crimean War that, have seriously made him consider either moving to Bangkok, Thailand, or throwing himself off the Tyne Bridge. He was obviously deeply depressed and sounded like he needed a friendly ear. Unfortunately, I didn't have the time for that, so I warned him that I was on a deadline and I'd be forced to put the phone down and call David Starkey if he didn't give me a snappy rundown of how drama schools began. I've had Starkey on speed dial since 1998 when he asked me to be his sponsor. He's not called in a long time, in fact, so one can only assume he's either kicked the habit for good or is, as he would say, getting completely blotto-wazzard and riding high with his bitches and his hoes and his brothers, who knows. God, I hope it's the first. Anyway, Sharma managed to push his self-indulgent to one side, stop his incessant crying, and give me the goods. For those who still wish to know what it's like, though, honestly, complete idiots, I have done the unthinkable and infiltrated a very well-known drama school for a day in order to bring you some of the horrors of which I warn. I called a school not two weeks ago, it was three, and requested a day visit, saying very shrewdly, it must be said, that I was a German nun by the name of Sister Bratwurst, who was working for the government as an inspector of religious freedom. I would need access to a typical class from the start of the day to the end, as well as beer and sausage, at any time I requested. To my surprise, they accepted, and after popping round to my friend Lenny to get his nun outfit from Halloween 2016, I began a transformation into the Bratwurst, and readied myself for the task ahead. What you are about to hear is quite horrid, I warn you. Those with a weak gag reflex might want to get the sink bowl at the ready. Side note. My lawyers inform me that in order to present this evidence without fear of being sued, I must present it in its entirety and read it verbatim, exactly as I wrote it on the day and the night. I mean, I would prefer to edit towards the end for reasons that will become apparent, but the law is the law, so instead I simply urge you to take note of the drama school's dark doings and, where necessary, ignore, let us say, my indiscretions. 4am. Wake up time. This involved the students waking up and immediately updating all of their social media with a new selfie and a caption which said what they were doing, how much they were looking forward to it, and how lucky they were to be there. Three students broke their necks just craning their heads to the side to get the right angle for the selfie. An ambulance was called but all three were pronounced dead at the scene. The warden's assistant told me this was very typical and that it was fine because they'd simply replace them with those on the waiting list by breakfast. I gave the sign of the cross, dipped with reverence, and floated onward. 
4.15 to 4.30 a.m. Students get up and report at the end of their bunks in their dorms for morning breathing exercises, including breathing out and in, followed by standing meditation, which involves controlled breathing and lengthy counting. Following this was maternal quick breaths. Then lastly, 15 minutes of no breathing at all. Already I'm finding the task at hand overwhelming, and so sink one of the ten alcoholic miniatures I've had Lenny sew into the lining of the cassock to calm my nerves. 4.30 to 5am. Strip and shower time. The students strip down to the nuddy waddies and stand in tiled corners where they are washed by the matron with a large fire hose. Each student is gifted one soap bar and is told not to share. Any student caught sharing must freeze in tableau for the remainder of the day, depicting an extremely sorry person begging for forgiveness. They call it the submissive, and excessive blinking is counted as a misdemeanor. 5 to 6 a.m. Breakfast. Students begin the day with a meal of one multivitamin, water, and a half portion of the fruit of the day. Today is a Tuesday, which is Lime Day. Limes freely available, I pocket one and in the loo sink two more Gordon's miniatures for Dutch courage. I'm going to need it for the morning's workshops to come. These people are animals. 6 to 8 a.m. Animal Studies Workshop. Having studied an animal in depth, spending a day at the zoo, students pick a beast and spend the entire hour acting as the said beast. The teacher refused to take questions at the end, especially when asked how it might be applied and whether they'd ever use it. Several students chose sloths just so they could sleep for an hour. I sink a miniature. 8 to 10 a.m. A memory recall workshop. Students are encouraged to share horrific stories about their lives in front of everyone else in the hope they may one day be able to use it to muster some tears as the princess in the pantomime. If a student has had a genuinely happy upbringing, they are encouraged to fabricate one and repeat it over and over until they believe it themselves and are a quivering wreck on the floor. Teachers insist this will be useful and will thank them in time before throwing a small bottle on the floor which explodes with a bang and large gust of smoke allowing the teacher to disappear. One student at the end comes up to me, clawing at my wimple, desperately asking me questions. I tell her to say her three Hail Marys, pray the Lord Jesus does not tarry, and to be assured many nuns have five o'clock shadow by 10am. I'm shaken by the interaction, which was not unlike how a zombie grabs a normal person in those films where zombies grab normal people. I sink into an alcove en route to the next workshop, sinking two more limes with gin. Isn't gin lovely? I must drink it more. 10am to 12pm. A screaming workshop. Students screamed for two hours into each other's faces. I stood in the corner and had half a miniature every 20 minutes. The tired, gaunt and haunted scream teacher joined me with her own miniatures and told me her story, which I shall remember for the rest of my days. The Horror Jesus H. Christ, The Horror Looking forward to lunch. 12 to 1 p.m. Lunch Students are given their medication for the day and the other portion of the fruit of the day. After this, they may take yard time as long as they agree to continually walk and follow the commands of the on-duty teacher. If she claps, they must jump. If she claps twice, they must touch the ground. If she whistles, they must say hello and nod to the nearest person. And if she shouts worms, they must drop to the floor, wriggle and writhe around with their arms tight to their bodies, all the time groaning loudly, and they must do this for 20 seconds. Think I might have a migraine coming on, or perhaps some form of food poisoning. Can't think why else I'd feel lightheaded, slur my words, and want to dance all the time. 1 to 3 p.m. Dancey classy. Lovely students, all friends of mine. Get ready for a ballet class 
but I suggest instead a good dance I learnt during my time in India in the Raj, and it goes down an absolute smash. Suggest we try it again later over some wine, to which the teacher shouts worms and all drop to the floor. I slip out to go to the Lulu, dancing all the way. I love dancing, I must do dancing more. 3 to 6 p.m. I take a wrong turn, completely by accident, get lost and find myself in a pub across the road. Oops. Shh. After a customary Guinness or four, one must help local business, the receptionist sees me and fetches me back. I assure her I was serious about the inspection, I wasn't drunk, and that she must under no circumstances call the government and to please return me to the class. And that she has lovely hair, like a young Cher. I tell her that if she wanted to, she could probably cover her tits with it if she ever had her top blown off by a gusty wind. 6 to 8 p.m. Dinner it is. Yes, love it. Conversation is stilted. What language is this they are speaking? Me no understand. I like gin. Ask students over dessert if they have any of the sweet ganja and they laugh. I'm a hit. Must tell Michael Billington. Write a text to him saying, Proved you wrong. Only took 40 years, you fat bastard. You're ruined. Look up and Rudin's gone gone. Where am I? 9 to 10 p.m. Faculty meeting with a head. No remember any of it, but being sent to observe final part of the day and then must leave the premises. Must leave the premises, the man said. Billington texts back, doesn't he? Holworth, go to bed. I laugh and falls over and it hurt him my elbow. Ouch. Nasty floor. Bad floor. Bad, bad, bad. Kind nun helps me up and I ask her, who laid this bloody floor? Her eyes glow red and I scared. Run to the dorm. 11.13pm, I think it's dark and monster time. Bread time. Budents expect their spunk while the waitress motches. She's a horrid little woman with no teeth and a stinky bum bum. Lights put out, but I try to get the party farted with a lovely round of yo 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 mum gently up her spleen. Wimple ripped off in seconds by Jeanette Cranky looky likey, so punched the witchy face with the stinky bum bum on the nosy. Man handled out by naughty boy with lovely thighs. He's cheeky. A cheeky cheeky boy. Taxi home for Holworth. Kebabs are nice. And it ends there with the line of the pen scrawled across the page down to what looks like a condiment stain. I'm not proud of how that ends, but I think my central point about drama schools being weird and worthless stands. And you'll be glad to know that I called the school the next day to apologise and to say I was embarrassed to say the least. I also called the emergency service to apologise after calling them out at 4am and confessing to the murder of a one-sister bratwurst. In fact, I had simply spilt tomato ketchup from my kebab on the fancy dress costume laid out on the carpet. I must have derobed as soon as I got in. The mind boggles. You're listening to Talking Siesta, the only podcast on earth about the siesta. Up next, we'll be exploring the upper-class versions of the musical theatre, opera and ballet. But for now, I must take toilet. This new medication I'm on gives me absolutely no time and no relief if you catch my drift. So it's a perfect opportunity to have a word from this week's sponsors.
bubbly. Silky soft, gooey, hot, frothy, sinful, delicious, sweet, quality, raw, sticky, Sumptuous, sugary, lovely, perfect, sexy chocolate. You like it, don't you? You want it, don't you? The sexy chocolate. I want the sexy chocolate so bad. You want the sexy chocolate? Buy my lovely creamy thick sexy chocolate. chocolate. Sexy chocolate. I want that sexy chocolate. This was a special moment. Sexy chocolate are proud sponsors of Talking Theater, the only podcast on earth about the theater. Mariah Callas, probably the most famous prima donna in the history of opera, said an opera begins long before the curtain goes up and ends long after it has come down. It starts in my imagination, it becomes my life, and it stays part of my life long before the curtain comes down. And I couldn't agree with her criticism more. Yes, Mariah is right. Operas are too long and often psychologically damaging. There's no doubt that the situation in which an opera patron is placed in is a stressful one. If straining to work out what is going on because you don't speak the language isn't hard enough, then fast-moving surtitles are also placed above the stage, forcing you to frantically move between the action on stage and the screen attached high up over the proscenium arch if you want to have a bloody clue what's going on. If that's still not enough to drive you to tears and shaking and making toilet in your panties, then how about having the hundred-strong cast screaming in your face for four to five hours, underscored by a loud, obnoxious orchestra that literally never stop playing, from the start to the bloody finish. It really is the sort of panic-attack-inducing stuff you'd expect to find as a contestant on ITV's The Cube more than you would as a piece of evening's light entertainment. And to top it off, the realisation you basically spent two months' worth of your mortgage money on the ticket. What a ruse! The whole business is not dissimilar to when I go to my local Ikea cafe, where loud and incessant shopping music is a continual distraction as I try valiantly to both read the menu and make out what the Swedish cashier Jakob is shouting at me. I just want the meatballs, Jakob. Just the meaty meatballs and the delicious Swedish sauce, Jakob. Jakob! I must say, though, that on price there is no comparison. IKEA are, and have always been, in my opinion, leaders in the field of value for money. Their furniture is easy to assemble, sturdy and fashionable, and I'll fight anybody who says otherwise. I mean it. Say one wrong word, and I will thump you.
It's as simple as that. Oh, oh. Perhaps you think I'm a pushover, do you? A lovey. An old todger whose threats to defend the Swedish immigrant furniture assembling population of the UK are empty and should be disregarded. Well, to you I say this. I may be over eighty, but a knife is a knife. As a side note, I was most pleased to have met Mariah Callas in March of 1972, while I was checking in my mother to an old folks' home which specialised in housing former opera singers. Mother Smooth had led the Royal Opera House Company for ten years as the leading soprano, until 1952, when a snake took her tongue in Marrakesh. The aptly named Fading Star's Retirement Home came with high recommendations. Oscar winner Mark Rylance said he put his father in ten years ago and hadn't heard from him once, which was very reassuring, and we were obviously excited to get Mother in and unburden ourselves as soon as possible. Mariah, meanwhile, was a resident at the time, and often sat herself close to the entrance, dressed head to toe in a kimono, wafting a large fan and gently humming like Madame Butterfly, waiting for her soldier to return. According to the nurses, the soldier in question was indeed symbolic of the real family members who had checked her in some months earlier to what she believed was a weekend spa retreat for her birthday. When we arrived, though, she hid her deep sadness and despair and welcomed us with open arms. I do recall chastising her for not rising as my mother made her entrance, as is the custom when one prima donna meets another, but Callis said she was confined to her wheelchair, and though she had no paperwork to evidence her excuse, I believed her. Well, I let it go, at least. It was at this encounter I came to know where she had got her name, Callis. She told me that having come from a family of hard carriers, Callus actually referred to the scarring of the rough skin on the inside of her hands, which she had inherited from generations of brick-laying Italian ruffians. And rough as badgers' asses they were too. When she took my face into her hands to embrace me as I went to leave, the mere brush of her palms against my cheek grazed the skin so heavily that I was forced to call my physician from the car. More curiously, she seemed to revel in it smiling knowingly as I withdrew from her, holding my blood-sodden cheek. When I asked her if she knew she might induce a facial hemorrhage by touching me as she did, she held my gaze, began to laugh quietly, and switching to her native Italian told the nurses to tell me she'd take care of my mother. As we got in the car and began to pull away, I took one last look back, and to my amazement, right in front of my eyes, quite on purpose, Callus rose from her wheelchair with ease, gave me the middle finger, and kicked a pigeon as it crossed her path. Touché, I thought. Touché. This week, I'm a very angry gentleman indeed. I like to think that the good listeners of my ear lectures are not the sort of people who read the red-top papers or watch the sort of mind-numbing reporting done by Mr. Snow, Mr. Murphy, and the short people at Channel 4. And yet... Their breaking of a frankly preposterous story yesterday involving my persons must be acknowledged and defended, my lud. I have to admit to being slightly flattered, being implicated in a sex scandal at 83 is what we called in the old days a bit of a swizz, and yet the churches themselves are a gross impertinence, not to mention pretty gross in their nature. And it almost goes without saying that I flatly deny each and every one of them. I never twisted the nipples of Anne Whittacombe at the 1994 Conservative Conference, naked or otherwise. Let me state that categorically for the record. 
I'm not sure I've ever twisted a nipple of anybody, including myself. Certainly not sexually. Nipples are purely ceremonial when it comes to the bedroom, if you ask me. Something interesting to look at, perhaps. Flick in jest. But to twist, I ask you. Of course, and I said this to that cow from the mail. If you need further proof, you can ask Mickey Portillo, because I was his guest the entire weekend of conference, and we shared a twin room at the Premier in Bournemouth. Now, on to the second charge of lechery. I can tell you now, I have never even met Jude Law, let alone fondled him in a pantry at Kevin Spacey's 40th birthday party. As a long-suffering celiac, the last place you'd find me is in any pantry, I can assure you. Again, for further proof, I'd suggest you take us up with Spacey. Though you'll be lucky to get through to him. I haven't heard from him in a while now. Not sure why. Must must chase that up. He's a great actor and a, a dear friend. Finally, no, and I can't believe I'm even having to say this out loud. But Fiona Bruce seemed confused last night on Newsnight, so I'll go over it again, I suppose. There was a hotel room, but there was no horse... There was no pumpkin, and that photo is clearly doctored. I deny each and every scrap and tittle of it all. Listen, listeners, I am an ardent lover. I make no bones about it. It's on my CV, for God's sake. And Sean, my partner, will tell you as much. And we have our own little quirks. Of course we do games and tools in the bedroom, of course. Yes, we've gone at it like nobody's watching. Yes, we've gone at it like lots of people are watching. Speeding up at the end to induce an imaginary applause. But rough sex at my age, at 83, my right hip fractures from just descending onto the toilet seat. It's a fabrication, a nonsense, and it's, well, it's bollocks. I'm minded to lay this at the feet of the Murdoch Press, or as I call them, the Murder Press. Hmm, satire. Now, I know I shouldn't give credit to a man who looks like a tortoise without a shell, and it's true that since he's found love with the dear Jerry Balls, he's been like a toddler who can't give up the titty. All coy and genteel, and I'm not responsible for untold death and misery through the myriad of lies my several publications propagate. He's in love, and who can deny it? Nevertheless... He still wields power, and like the Dark Lord Sauron Voldemort, or one of those nasty ones with the red lollipops from the Star Wars franchise, he may be quiet for some time, but his unrenting evil never sleeps. On this occasion, though, I don't think it's him. No, this has the dirty, grubby, sovereign-ringed hands of one Miss Sonia Friedman. I have no doubt that upon hearing of my intention to lay bare theatre criticism and the cult of reviewing, that the renowned theatre producer and part-time Avon Lady Friedman has leapt to the defence of those sycophants that adorn her shows with the many five-star trinkets by bringing my reputation into disrepute. Well, Sonia, I have a middle finger, and I'd love you to swivel on it. You may have got this story into the headlines and on the front pages of a few rags, but the public will see through your tomfoolery, and I suspect you'll see a slight dip in your ticket sales at the Book of Mormon HQ in protest. Incidentally, I would also like to ask the stage newspaper why they only featured the story on page six. A ludicrous display of unbridled mendacity it 
Maybe. Nevertheless, if Holbert Smoon's name is in the title, it must go front page. For goodness sakes! Oh! My final gripe with the whole business is that all the articles seems to make sarcastic side comments about my delivery on the podcast, saying I'm at the best of times hard to follow, and at the worst of times completely unintelligible, or, as the son put it, like the post-drunk man in the corner of the pub, on his own, mumbling to the dartboard about where he went wrong all those years ago. <laughs> Unintelligible. I've been called many things in my life. Selfish, impatient, a, a wanker, but never have I been called unintelligible. That is pure monk-turned Phil Doozy, if ever I've heard it. They ought to have their shingle called Fumblers shodden under two dang blasters and gobbluted into a house dollars in jungle belly. And if that's not clear, then I don't know what is. Looking through all my old notices to try and find an occasion when the critics got it right was a difficult one. But I did fish out one little trinket, which I shall read a snippet from now in the name of balance. Holworth Felix to Smooth's Inglebert is a sight to behold. Every flick of the eyes ever whispered line. Every wild gesture comes together in a melee of excellence and demonstrates just why he is the foremost practitioner in this business of show. Not only is this review touching, it is completely right, I can assure you. I was astounding in this biographical play about the life of the popular singer Engelbert Humpeldinks, and all who saw it thought so. Now look, it's true. It only ran for one night. It's also true that it was technically a read-through in my garden to invited guests. Well, family. And I suppose, if you wanted to get down to the nitty-gritty, no press were in attendance, and so it was I who was forced to write this review. And of course, that is all absolutely true. But if you want to tear down the fortress of my will and my love of the theatre by nitpicking irrelevancies, then you go right ahead. But I'd rather say that sometimes critics can get it right, and in this case they clearly did. And if you don't like that, well, I have only this to say to you all out there. I have a finger, and you can swivel on it. Although gifted amateur is a description I'd normally reserve for myself in relation to my weekend volunteering at the Pauper's Gynecology Clinic, it's true it's used more in polite conversation to describe the scarce type of actor you see on the Andram stage, who by all accounts might be able to make a living from actual palpable talent. Because of their talents, they will often play the top lead in the shows, and as one might expect in the professional world, they will be good singers, adept with a script, and have a healthy attitude in relation to shagging their way around the cast. Where the main difference comes in is in the progression of the amateur career. In the professional world, survival of the fittest is key, and age plays a large factor, and, and, and rightly so. If you're a talented juvenile like Bradley Pitt, you can expect a long shelf life because a rich lifestyle and an encouraging dose of patriarchy will keep you in the sunlight of the industries and factions. 
If you're a professional female actor or actress or lady performer or madam of faces and gestures, then you can also rely on a relatively longer shelf life with a good surgeon and by hitching your frumpy wagon to a successful gentleman star. Now, of course, without these luxurious and often costly additions, have you been to a plastic surgeon? Good grief. The actor is simply replaced in the professional world. You get a younger person and the circle of life continues. But in the amateur world, there is no such luck. The average suburban company may benefit from one male gifted amateur in a hundred year cycle. And so they'll often have no choice but to continue to use him again and again and again. Like a poor family, putting out the old stallion every spring, draining him empty until he's produced as much as he can, even though he's had two hip replacements and really should have been shot a decade earlier and sent to the glue factory in an unmarked box. Yes, unfortunately, the male gifted amateur's talents will see him achieve many leading roles, but like Val Kilmer, his age will ravage him to the point of audience exhaustion. With people watching shows, you know, dumbfounded and perplexed at how, oh, I don't know, a 65-year-old could play Curly opposite 17-year-old Laurie in the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical hit about the gay community in the Deep South, Oklahoma. It just doesn't work. For females, it's again slightly different. In all theatre, women saturate the market, and so competition is fierce, uh, even on the amateur stage, and their trajectory will often be age-specific and regimented so. So loosely, you'd have something like uh, 14 to 17 years of age, the flighty nitwit, age 17 to 20, the geeky best friend, 21 years of age, bang on, beautiful young girl with everything going for her, 22 to 40, sarcastic and jaded friend or aunt, aged 40 to 50, divorcee, and this is the art imitating life period, 50 to 60, old crone, and then 60 plus, grandma, who dies soon, please. The last people to mention would be the amateur backstage crew who, honestly, I can't even be asked bothering with. I can't see what they get out of it, Sean. Honestly. No, I can't be bothered with them. I mean, think about it. Think about them. You want to sit there in the dark for three hours, occasionally getting up to push large bits of furniture around, in the dark, to a half-filled auditorium, in the dark, for no money, in Hounslow, I do not understand what they get out of it. I actually think anybody who does that ought to see a doctor or one of those lady doctor assistants. I've said before, Sean, you need to have a real penchant for the macabre with something like that. I mean, you wonder what it is they really get out of it. Are they secretly stealing things from the actors' handbags while the actors are on stage? You don't know. You don't know. Are they secretly following the younger girls at the chorus home? Hmm? Or fantasising about them as they zip up their sleeping bags at night? I wouldn't like to say. Are they aliens? Are they aliens? You can't answer, Sean. Horrid aliens in disguise? Possibly. Very possibly. Otherwise, I simply can't understand it. I mean, I have some experience. I used to shift my mother about in the dead of night in complete darkness when she was bedbound and weighed 30 stones. But, I mean, there was a reason I did that, obviously. If I didn't, she'd have taken toilets on my Georgian pelt. And much like the eventual dialysis machine we got her, that would have really been taking the piss. No, they're rotten to the core, those wing grobblers, and I can't abide them, and that's all there is to it. 
Sorry, not sorry. One thing I think does court the amateur shows is controversy. No, I'm not talking about the high level of sexual offences committed in the church halls and community dressing rooms of the amateur world. That's hardly interesting or indeed important, but rather representation in the choice of show. In our industry, people are so often judgmental about amateur show choice because it's often at odds with the race, creed or colour of the performers themselves. It's true that in the professional theatre, you'll often hear people saying it's racist for white, middle-class, villagey folk to play others of a different hue, and that they are taking roles from those actors who are the right nationality or colour who would otherwise play them. But uh, have you tried casting the King and I in Kidderminster? It's bloody murder! You'd be hard-pressed to find one Thai restaurant there let alone 20 Thai children of different ages, plus another 14 Thai women, as the play calls for. I suppose you'd say, why do it at all then? Which I find most troubling. Are you really saying that the good people of West Byfleet should never again have the chance to see Miss Saigon in their local church hall because you regard a few very well-meaning white privileged people overdoing their eyeliner as plain hateful? Good grief! What have we come to? Actors are actors, and the amateur theatre is the amateur theatre, and audiences are audiences, and they deserve to have these great shows kept alive in their almost desolate communities. They shouldn't need to drive for as long as five to ten minutes to a professional theatre to see it done in your very prescriptive nature as with maturity, nuance, and actors who are representative of the race of the characters and not offences. I mean, boring. It's pissy gone mad. Think about it. Why shouldn't I be able to see Showboat in Wrightslip? What's the harm with a Bombay dream since Sunningdale? And if the Isle of Wight Operatic Society wants to put on Brigadoon, then I say let them. What is a kilt between friends? Not enough coverage, I would imagine. I mean, that's a bit of a joke, obviously, but there is a serious point to be made. I mean, generally, of course, I, I wouldn't dream of going to the Isle of Wight, for instance. It's like a floating hospice. The stench of death is around every corner. But if they want to do it, then let them. Christ knows they ought to be allowed something before their final months or weeks. We mustn't stifle the actors' companies and the communities. For goodness sakes, Mark Rylance played a gypsy traveller man in Jerusalem and nobody battered an eyelid. A lot of producers got battered, surely, by the gypsy community, but that's as par for the course. No, he did a fine job and people accepted it because it was good, honest fun. I think. I never saw it, so I can't be sure. Sorry, Mark. Slap my hands and call me naughty. <laughs> and before any of you write in about my using the word gypsy, please remember that I have a long and loving relationship with the community. If you look in my CD collection, you'll find the Gypsy Kings. In my Biscuit Tim, Gypsy Creams. And in my vinyl collection, you'll find Barbara Dixon's cracking bit of popular music, Caravan. So I have nothing but good things to say about them, and I always will. Pikes, on the other hand, are evil. Do not trust them with your iguana. I bet some of you out there are wondering what the 
hell old Holworth was going on about in the introduction? Well, I was giving a citation from the journey history of my dear friend, Mrs. Satnav, because this week is all about direction. <laughs> forgive me, forgive me. That's a trite joke, I know, and I told Sean as much, but um, he insisted I start with it, and I can't be bothered arguing when he's having one of his OCD moments, shall we say. Talking of the sat-nav and directions, that's reminded me about something that happened the other day. Um, I hope you don't mind me telling you. I feel as though I must. I hope you don't indulge me. Uh, Sean and I decided, basically, that we would have a bite to eat um, and would try this new restaurant down the road, which just opened. It's part of a large chain. Uh, it's called McDonald's. Um, and I told Sean he must use the sat-nav but he insisted that he knew the way. Uh, nevertheless, I insisted on the sat-nav, as, to be honest, it had been a while since we used it, and I missed her voice. Other than Holly Willoughby in the mornings and Tess Daly on Saturday evenings, I don't have many women in my life, so I find the soothing voice of the K751 Motor 259 deeply reassuring. In fact, I'm often moved to tears when she says, You've reached your destination, slipping the car into neutral, Sobbing, and asking myself, have I? Have I, K751 Motor 259, have I? Have I? Anyway, we took the sat-nav and hopped into the car, and three minutes later we arrived. But as we pulled up in the micro, some youths were stood outside loitering. They were probably in their mid-thirties, and probably a couple, and probably waiting for a bus. But you can't take any chances. I told Sean to wait in the car and that I'd go and get the food, which suited him because he's very lazy, um, and it suited me because, of course, I had a knife, so I had protection. You bloody are lazy, dear. Well, you, you can look at me all you want through the wi mouthing off like that through the window, but you bloody... I'm not, I'm not doing this over here. I'm not doing... I forbid it. I forbid it. But, would you, well, who cleans the arger? Tell me that. Who cleans the arga? 83 years of age. And you have me twice a week, on my knees, up to my elbows, and not in a sexy way. Deep in my greasy arga. It's a bloody disgrace. So, anyway, um, sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I agreed to go. I popped my hip back in, and then I popped into the restaurant. Uh, which was an experience, because unlike Sean, I'd never set foot in a McDonald's in my life. I once found myself in a wimpy in 62, but uh, that was with Danny DeVito, and to be fair to us, we did think it was a brothel. So I go into the McDonald's, anyway, there I am, uh, and I move through the wild, panting, chomping kids and the parents who look like they'd rather be dead than spend another minute with their own children, winding my way to the counter, where I'm greeted by a teenager who says, What can I get you, sir? Uh, he obviously recognised me from my career, and I thought it was a nice touch to give me my official title. Of course, he may have also clocked my actual medallion knighthood, which I wear at all times, including at night on my pyjamas, and uh, naked in the shower pinned to my panic-button lanyard. In fact, I have on occasion awoken in the night, complaining of chest pains, thinking I'm having a heart attack, only to find the pins come loose in the middle, affording me a makeshift nipple piercing.
So, I said to the footballer, anyway, um, I'd like two medium-rare hamburgers, please, and half a bottle of Beaujolais. Uh, the teenager stifles his laughter and tells me they don't do Beaujolais, uh, to which I say, well, that's fine. I'll have a Shiraz, if, if that's easier, to which he once again smiles and says, no, you don't understand, to which I cut him off and say, Rioja is fine. The boy then cuts me off without a hint of apology. We don't do red wine. A little disgruntled, I tell him that a bottle of Zinfandel blush will not come amiss, and before you know it, the manager is front of me telling me that they don't do wine and that could I put the knife away because I'm scaring the children. Well, I mean, <laughs> I was taken aback. Literally, two of the staff grabbed me and shifted me further away from the counter. Anyway, once I took the requisite three and a half minutes I'd been given to calm down, uh, they were ready to take my order again. I apologised, and I informed them that I was perhaps a little too overwrought because we were on our schedule. We were booked into London Zoo that afternoon, and if we didn't miss the rain, then we would likely not to get to see the lions, and I wanted to see the lions, preferably one of those big ones. Uh, the manager understood, or pretended like he did, and asked me what I would like. I said, can I please have two burgers? He said, do you want it as a meal? I said, of course. I'm not going to zhuzh it with all-purpose spray and wipe my agar with it. What on earth are you talking about, man? So he says, well, you can have it on your own, or you can have it as a meal. On its own, it's £4.59. pence. I said, go on. He said, for an extra thirty pence, you can have it with chips. I said, I don't want chips that are only worth 30 pence. He said, no, they're the same chips on the menu that if you buy them on their own, they would cost you two pounds and ten pence. I said, I don't understand. He said, it's a meal deal. I said, go on. He said, the chips are part of the meal deal where the price is reduced if you buy them with the burger. Why, you could have blown me over with a feather. I said, you mean to tell me that though those items would be seven pounds and sixty-nine pence, should I choose to purchase them together, the good people of McDonald's will reduce my overall cost by one pounds and eighty pence, or two halfpennies and five guineas in old money. I said, I don't believe you. How on earth do you people make any money? Giving so much away, he assured me it was true, and proved it by pressing his big fingers into the till to ring up the price and show me and tickle my balls, there it was, in a sort of digital green, four pounds and eighty-nine pence, or two half-crowns and a tapney nudger. Well, you could have blown me over with the feather. I said to him, well, sign me up, Dolly. I'll have two burgers and two chips, and take my money now before you change your mind. He said it was the company, not him, who set the meal deals and prices, and that it was standard. I said, of course it is. I gave him a, a wink and a nudge, and when he turned, I pinched him on his asshole. I said, we all used to do it back in the army days. A couple of ting wongles for a jubber and a glilden husband. We were all at it. Good for you, I said. So, anyway, there, I'm stood there, and I'm counting out all my five peas onto the counter, when the man says, what drink would you like? I said, I thought you didn't do a wine. He said, well, we don't, but we do do other drinks. Well, I said, what sort? And uh, he said, soft drinks. I said, what, like a mixer? No, darling, I only drink tonic with gin, so I'll pass. So he says, Fanta, to which I replied, no, my name's Holworth, but you can call Mrs. Smooth. I dropped the Felix Doe at informal occasions. He said, no.
<laughs> Fanta is an orange fizzy soft drink. Well, you could have blown me over with a feather. I said orange, fizzy, soft, drink. Butter my ass, that sounds lovely. I'll have two. How much extra will that be? And he said, no, it's free with the meal deal. <laughs> you could have blown me over with a feather. Free, free, free. Free, I started saying it so frankly, and in such a high-pitched voice, I sounded like a lorry reversing. Please explain, I said. And I should admit here that I was getting even a touch scared by it all. He said, the meal is a drink, chips and a burger. I said, that's it. I've had enough. I know a Daily Mail sting when I see one. Or are you like one of those set-up shows that dear Jeremy Beadle used to do? Oh, Jeremy. Losing him was a dagger to the heart. Anyway, I said, look, level with me, OK? The drink on its own is what? He said, £1.90. I said, five guineas, sure. So explain to me how the addition of said delicious fizzy fruity fructose drink to my already generous burger and chip combo means I pay not a quarter farthing more. Tell me that, Brainiac. He says, I don't know. That's just what it is. Well, as you can imagine, I was exhausted by this time, and Sean was beeping the car horn like a madman, so I asked if I could, you know, sit down just to think it all through. And the manager said, yes, of course, and um, I was fortunate enough to have a burly man behind me, who, on my instruction, helped me to get an arse cheek onto the counter, and then both of my legs up. Of course, the manager then started fussing and saying he thought I meant on a chair and could I please get off the counter? And so I shout, Oh, I can have all the free drink and chips and burger in the land for half a crown, but I can't sit on a counter. No, that's madness. No, you're right. I'm the mad one here. Yes, I'm the mad one. The whole business had begun to cause me to become a little disorientated, if I'm honest. I had not been so discombobulated since the local shopkeep told me that all four fingers of the humble Kit Kat were included in the one price. I mean, the mind boggles. Anyway, I got a grip of myself and I said, let's just get this straight once and for all and you tell me if I have this right. I pay you the sum of 13 shillings, two halfpennies and a duck egg or £9.78 in new money and for that you will give me two buggers, two chip portions and two drinks with absolutely no catch. And he said, yes. And with that, I collapsed, out cold, fainting into the arms of the greasy fingers of council house children. I was rushed to hospital and treated for shock, understandably so. When I awoke, Sean was at the bed, and the MacDonald was there in a beautiful spread, a deluxe paint palette of yellows, browns, and dark reds. The ketchup. I devoured the food, and can attest it was as delicious as the many adverts suggest, though it doesn't quite look the same. I must write to them about that. I said to Sean, I'm not sure what happened. I collapsed, I suppose. I just couldn't believe they would be so kind. Why would this company be so kind? They must be running at a continual loss providing this type of humanitarian altruism to the good people of the globe. And as I chomped on my last chip, and slurped the last bit of delicious fanta, Sean said, and we didn't have to pay for this even. They gave it to us for free after one of the very old cleaners recognised you from Emmerdale Farm in the 80s. Well, I have no embarrassment in telling you, listener. 
I went into immediate cardiac arrest. Quite literally. I only got out two days ago. I was in a coma for four days. The generosity is astounding. Like many, I never fully appreciated design until the hit 1990s BBC show Changing Rooms was in its full swing. For those in the dark on this, seriously, where have you been? The former 30-minute prime time must-see is essentially a makeover narrative and sees two poor households allow a bunch of inappropriate designers into their living rooms to throw away their old sofa and replace it with a rock pool and mirror the size of a Land Rover. Though widely accepted as a reality show, the expressions on the genuinely devastated tenants' faces cemented the programme as one of the greatest comedy series of all time, topping a 2000 poll which included Dad's Army, Faulty Towers and Roots. The deafening cries of a family who can't afford to have the work reversed, the mother shouting live on television, I hate it, you've ruined everything. John, it's all black. Why is it all black? Well... They still make me chuckle in the dead of night. But what I take from it mostly is the impact that design has had. Not the lasting psychological damage. Simply that wow factor. That wow. I can't believe how awful that is. Wow. Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen, the long-locked bringer of darkness, famous on the show for restyling everything the same as a 50-year-old man's bachelor pad, told me that design really is the last surviving art form in the Western world. I bumped into him at a mutual enemy's funeral not long ago, as well as laughing along in the back row of the cram. We also discussed this episode and designer's impact. He told me that whilst changing rooms had been a game changer in people's perception of design, actual designing had gone back much further. I was perplexed, surprised, and even physically sick to find out that places like the Taj Mahal and Tower Bridge had been designed. The mind boggles. He called these designers architects, and before it all got too complicated, I cut him off and steered him and the conversation to the theatre. Well, after asking about Carol Smiley, obviously. Was she really that smiley? I had to know. He said, he said yes, she was. Said, no, but really? Is she really that smiley? He said, yes, she's lovely. No, but come on, Lawrence. Really? Is she really that smiley? And he said, yes, yes, she was. I said, well, come on. Carol Smiley, though. He said, yes, Holworth, she is smiley. I said, but as in overly smiley. He said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, is she smiling when she shouldn't be? He said, well, what? I said, well, like here, like at a funeral. Well, he said, I never went to a funeral with her, Holworth. I said, but if you, well, just imagine it now, if you were at a funeral with her, would she be the sort of person who would continue smiling because she is herself very smiley? He said, well, no, she probably wasn't. And I said, oh, oh. So she isn't always smiley then, is she? Carol Smiley. I knew it. What a moody bitch. Well, lots of bits of fun that was. And so educational. Honestly, I, I never knew I had it in me. Uh, well, I mean, I've always known about it, I suppose, when I've felt it inside of me. On those occasions, indeed, when, when one does feel it inside of oneself, but uh, not in, in such a grand and meaningful way. I mean, of course, sometimes one does feel it in oneself in a very large and uh, 
it has to be a very fulfilling way. Uh, and, anyway, let's, let's just round off with a little Christmas message. My Christmas message. I want to tell you a story. It's about a child, a baby boy, whose birth many centuries ago would change the world forever, and who really is the reason we celebrate at Christmas. That's right, I'm talking of none other than Santa Claus. Born via the vagina of a virgin, no mean feat, Santa spent his early years in charity endeavours before choosing a life of magical altruism. But the Romans didn't like that, and they murdered him by nailing him to some old ceiling beams they had laying about, but not before adorning his head with a crown of thorns. Incidentally, you might be interested to know that that's why we actually hang wreaths on our doors. Uh, it's a superstition that goes back centuries. The Christmas wreath represents the crown of thorns that was worn by Santa Claus on the ceiling beams. And it is thought, that, of course, that if you hang the wreath on your door, you will ward off uh, any Christmas demons, of which there are many, it's too many to go into uh, on this podcast. Um, but of course, we celebrate Christmas uh, and it brings joy into our lives. But as my old priest used to always say, uh, when one door opens, another also opens. Um, in the end, I think they got it fixed. It, it, it was a, a horrible combination of ineffective draft excluding and old hinges. Uh, nevertheless, there are Christmas demons, and, and if we want the smooth, then we must confront the rough, if you'll pardon the pun. Anyway, the Romans did indeed murder Santa, but he rose the next day from the dead, and after going on a bloody rampage and killing all the Romans, uh, and you can get more information from my book, Fall of the Roman Empire, by Ho with Felix Stowe Smooth, which is available uh, in paperback and hard copy, and was published in 1998. Uh, he then committed himself to the magical service of human beings, and pledged to visit all in one night, bringing joy and gifts to the land for just one day. But of course, there was a catch, as so often is. And that wonderful day had to be followed by a day of fighting, wrestling, and general chaos. That was the bargain. A day of gift-giving, and then a day of chaos. A bit like that film, The Purge, um, but instead of people being killed and finding the sweet release of death, uh, one lives through the vicious beatings and torture and must live the year in trauma with uh, the sure and certain knowledge that in a year's time it will all happen again. Now, it's true that over time, Boxing Day has become less about the violence, and that's a shame, certainly. But that's the story I want you to consider this year. Who could have thought that a tiny baby would grow to become this rotund old man we all know and rely on to bring us the materialistic happiness we all so crave. So when you're opening your presents, or not as the case may be for my children, have a thought for old Saint Nick, the resurrected ghost of a centuries-old murdered man who has no choice but to remain obese and who can't even dye his hair for fearing of offending those who view his image as the very essence of Christmas. 
Indeed, Santa always wears red, you might like to know, because it is the colour of the Catholic martyr, and it represents the bloody mess of his carcass posts as murder. Uh, it's true, in some countries he does also appear in green, which uh, is the rotting flesh of his zombie corpse. Now, uh, different countries, different things, it's, it's just fine. So we must be thankful. The bankers must thank Nicky as they're given their bonuses. The businessmen must be thankful as they count their billions. Daddy and Mummy must thank Mr. Klaus as they throw another thwack or argue over the dinner spread. Teachers should be thankful for yet more time off work. <laughs> and Grandma and Grandad must be thankful to have even seen another Christmas at all. It's a time for thanks. I hope you have a splendid Christmas, a wonderful New Year, and if you're not of the Christian religion, well then I wish you enlightenment, that one day you will return to the kingdom of our Lord and recognise His Highness the King Jesus Christ as the one and only true God. And once you do, I would then wish you once again a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. All that is left to say for this season from your friend, Sir Holworth Felix de Smooth, is... I when the snowman brings the snow, then it does not love to know. Has got red big smile on some father's face. It's not a red big smile.